Welcome to the Plugged In Podcast. I'm your host, Neil Chatterjee, joined once again by my co-host, Brianne Depish. Brianne, how are things going? Hey, Neil. It is fantastic to be here with you guys. Lots to talk about this week. I'm really excited to break it down and be joined by our exciting guest. We've got a great one this week. Heather Reams, the president of Citizens for Responsible Energy Solutions or CRES, a forum that is a right-of-center, not-for-profit organization based here in D.C. that engages policymakers and the public about responsible, conservative solutions to our nation's energy, economic, and environmental security, while also looking to increase America's competitive edge. I've known Heather for a long time. She's been working very closely, particularly on House Republicans, to bring them along on these critical issues. She recently led a delegation to Egypt, to the COP, to talk about these issues. And to the extent that the Conservative Climate Caucus is going to take a leadership role in the next Congress with the House Republican majority, a lot of the work that they will do is going to emanate from all of Heather and Krez's hard work. So I think particularly at this time, as we wrap up 2022 and look into 2023, couldn't ask for a better guest. Heather, thank you for joining Brianna and I on the Plugged In Podcast. I am delighted to be with you. Thank you so much for having me. Well, if we could start off, Heather, I mean, I did a little bit of an intro there, but for our listeners, if you could just kind of talk about, you know, you've been with Crest since 2016, just give us a little bit of background on yourself and on the organization, and then we can dive into the issues. Yeah, I would love to. So I am a kind of a Washington swampy type of person. I've been in D.C. since 1995 and was interning for a senator back in the early 90s. Washington and how it operates is part of what I know. I came along Crest in 2016, much earlier, and then started working for them full time in 2016, November right before President Trump was elected. Things were very different then. We've seen the climate discussion change with Republicans over a period of time. I think back to six, seven years ago and where we were and where we are now, and it's just incredible. I'd like to think that Crest has some reason of, of helping this, this dialogue along, but we want Republicans at the table talking about solutions to reducing emissions and not just domestic re- emissions, global emissions. We could get to net zero here in the United States tomorrow. But what does that mean for the developing world that's going to need more energy every year? And uh, how do we get them to lower their emissions as well? So this is a global problem that needs global solutions. And you're right, we've been working really closely with the House Republicans thinking and talking about this. We led a delegation to COP27 in uh, Egypt, and that was actually our second trip of leading Republicans over. And I feel very optimistic about how Republicans are going to engage in this next Congress and thinking about lowering emissions that benefits us all. So let's start there. Talk about the trip to Egypt and the delegation that you led. And to the extent you can compare it to COP26 in Scotland as well, we'll just love your perspective on the differences between the two and quite frankly, how your delegation was received. 
Yeah, that's a it's a great question. In the COP26, this was the these were both delegations that are Republican only. So some members of the delegation had been over to COP with a bipartisan delegation. So you know the, their message was probably not everyone agreed with it. Whereas with the Republican delegation, I, I think there was a little bit more agreement about what was was talked about. Scotland and Glasgow in 2000 and last year in 2021 was kind of an entry point for us. We did not speak at COP or seek to be heard at COP. It was more to listen, learn, find out more about what the global assessment was, where is the United States' role and how Republicans can be you know, helpful in, in this piece. It was, it was really more of a, let's see this. And we also did a lot of side events. We met with a, a large number of members of parliament from governments all over the world, also right of center, and finding out that this area that we have in the United States of thinking about how we're going to reduce emissions, but also make sure we have economic drivers and, and we have abundant energy and affordability is something that a lot of nations struggle with. And, and, and what I deal with, um, in particular, I'm thinking of, of Australia, we just felt like we were just on you know, the same side of the coin. So coming into COP27, we made a decision that members wanted to be able to speak at the COP. So they held a panel at the pavilion, the US pavilion and, and spoke. And to my knowledge, it was the first ever we had an all Republican panel panel speaking. I was on the panel along with my co-founder of the Conservative Climate Foundation, Rich Powell at ClearPath, who is also on the panel. So I think the first was a stun that Republicans were there and wanted to be at COP, that they were acknowledging that climate is changing and that you know there's a role for federal government and the United States to do something about it. So I, I think there was some surprise, but I think the surprise may have continued because so much at COP is about reducing and really getting rid of all fossil fuels. And Republicans brought a very different message talking about all the above and the efficiencies that the United States can bring to creating energy and, and exporting it worldwide. I think it was received well enough, but time will tell how well it received in subsequent COPs. Yeah, absolutely. And I actually think you brought up an interesting point. There's a lot of consensus or a growing amount of consensus in the US, at least between Democrats and Republicans on climate, and at least just really acknowledging the fact that this is something that we cannot afford to waste more time on that needs to be addressed right away. What are some areas of commonality that you see potentially reaching with colleagues across the aisle? You know, I think this is going to be an area where lawmakers have to negotiate a bit more, especially with the Republicans controlling the house starting in January. Yeah, for sure. Well, we're seeing it right now in the this wrapping up the final days of this Congress is you know the, the desire of permitting reform, but what it looks like and how it operates sounds like each member of Congress has something different, not to mention each party, each side of the aisle. So I think both sides acknowledge that permitting reform needs to happen. We're spending a tremendous amount of federal dollars trying to increase the capacity of clean and renewable energy. And if the dollars aren't getting out the door and steel isn't getting into the ground, that's a failure on the Democrats part. And it certainly doesn't look great for Republicans. Republicans have been long, long held they want significant permitting reform. So I think they're going to dig in and really look for a you know, meaningful in-depth permitting reform, not just permitting reform in name only. So I think that's that's certainly something that's going to, to play out. 
I think areas and innovation that have continued to be interesting, like critical minerals, supply chains, looking at methane emissions reductions, promise of CCUS. I think Democrats are coming around a little bit more in nuclear, especially looking at what's been going on in Europe and thinking about baseload power. I think there could be another look at nuclear in a different way that can be pretty exciting. And I, I think it's overall, I'm going to go back to the critical minerals and supply chains. And so much of what we're doing you know, in our daily lives requires critical minerals, but it's certainly is the case for EVs, battery storage, and even just the solar cells, wind turbines and others. So thinking about how we're shoring up our supplies, whether we're mining them here in the United States or we're working with our allies rather than our adversaries and securing these supply chains, I think is kind of a, not a red or blue issue. It's more of a red, white, and blue issue. So I think there's a lot of commonality there. So that's, there are some of the areas I think where we can work together. But, you know, when you, when you have a new party coming in and, and the leadership, you don't always see the bipartisanship coming out of the gate. So we might have to wait a little bit until we see some of that. How much, Heather, do you think waiting for some of that bipartisanship will be a result of the fact that, look, the Inflation Reduction Act was enacted via a partisan vehicle, budget reconciliation, which is designed to circumvent the minority party in the Senate. But a lot of the provisions in the energy space in particular are things technology-driven, incentive-based that you have been working to advocate with Republicans for some time. How much do you think that some of the provisions that were included in the IRA would have been, could have been bipartisan, and is something that Republicans might be able to build on in this House majority? Yeah, I, I agree here. I mean, this, it was really unfortunate that vehicle of using a, a partisan process and cutting the other party out. I know both sides of the aisle do it. But one thing that as, as an advocate of clean energy from the right of center, I want to showcase where Republicans are really digging in and showing that they're supporting you know, technologies and, and policies that are going to help the environment also help our economy and our energy supplies. So it was disappointing to see that process. But if you break down some of those pieces, in IRA, you see all of these pieces of legislation that had co-sponsorship with Republicans or were led by Republicans. Also, a lot of where the investments are going are also going to states that are traditionally red states or red districts. So the idea of this rolling back in this massive way, because Republicans are coming in to lead the House of Representatives and historically, it'll just be rollback, 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 I really think is a misnomer. I do think there'll be oversight on how money is spent and making sure it's done in, in a responsible way. But I think in terms of rolling back the dollar, I just don't think it's going to happen because of the support, the policy support so much in there, regardless of the process of IRA and then just where it's going. It's going to red states in a lot of instances. I do have to ask you, who do you think some of the leaders within the Republican Party are going to be, you know, on these key issues? Well, some of them are the usual suspects in terms of what we've seen, but they're just going to have a larger voice. So, you know, it's interesting to think about Garrett Grace, Congressman Grace from Louisiana. Will the Select Committee on the Climate Crisis remain? Him having a leadership role, will it be renamed as a committee or will it just go away entirely? Those are some of the questions that we have. And regardless, I'd like to think that we are going to see him and continue in some kind of leadership role, even if the committee doesn't continue. Let's watch Garrett Graves and see where he goes. Bruce Westerman, I had the privilege of hearing him speak at a, an event uh, not too long ago, and he is coming in as the House Natural Resources Chair and is ready not only to hold hearings and get legislation moving, but he really wants to get out into the field. He wants to have field hearings. He wants members to see things, learn things, and make good decisions. So this will be his first time as a chair. 
pretty exciting. And then uh, Kathy McMorris Rogers, we've about to be appointed, we assume chair of uh, energy and commerce. Wow. ENC has a huge portfolio, but Representative McMorris Rogers has been, you know, outsized role on talking about hydropower. She's also been a, a huge critic of China and the US-China relationship and making sure that the United States is strong and dominant against China. And I think she'll be very tough on China and hold hearings on that as well. So when you think about where our dollars going or thinking about where our supplies come from, going back to critical minerals and so many of much of it coming from China, I think Morris Rogers is going to be very tough on that and it'd be asking a lot of questions. Oh, that's great to think about these new and innovative Republican leaders on this. A lot of focus on who the speaker is going to be and whether it's going to be Kevin McCarthy and how he will handle some of these issues. I know you've worked very closely with him and his team over the years. I don't want to put you on the spot and get you into the parlor game of what's going to happen with the speaker vote and this and that. But can you just give our listeners a sense of the interactions you had with potential future Speaker McCarthy and how you think he may approach some of these things? Speaker McCarthy or to be Speaker McCarthy has been an incredible, I think, facilitator of discussions. And we saw that with his leadership with appointing Garrett Graves to the select committee in this past Congress. Garrett Graves is from Louisiana. He's from an oil and gas state, but he really understands the environment and conservation in his previous works. I think McCarthy comes at this in a very pragmatic way, common sense way. He also knows that his party isn't homogenous on these issues. So he is dealing with the Freedom Caucus and in large part right now. And I anticipate one of their demands in exchange for a vote for McCarthy would be getting rid of the Select Committee on the Climate Crisis or at a minimum renaming it, which I think was actually in the cards to begin with. But you know, just getting rid of that thing altogether, let energy and commerce do its job. But he has been a consensus builder. He also put on the Select Committee, just looking at that, members like Dan Crenshaw, from Texas, oil and gas, but also a wind state. Representative Carol Miller from uh, West Virginia, traditionally a coal state, now natural gas and um, renewables are starting to pop up. He's tried to create these balances so all sides are heard within the party and then has forged consensus with the task force that he created as part of his commitment to America, the Energy, Climate and Conservation Task Force that came out with these policy pieces that, you know, or something with six of them that really encompassed and, and boiled down where all Republicans tend to be and what they can agree on. That's a tremendous amount of work for a minority leader, but the work was done in this Congress anticipating he'd be a speaker. And so he can hit the ground running on day one. You know, I think it's so important that you're here and laying this all out because there is this sort of conventional wisdom, if you will, that Republicans and Republican-oriented groups and right-of-center groups aren't really all that engaged in these kinds of issues. And I just think it's important for folks to understand that this stuff just doesn't happen overnight, that it takes a lot of work and education and advocacy. And so um, I just want to commend you for that. And then pivot to some of the other things that I know you've been working on that are are really significant that I find particularly intriguing. If you wouldn't mind kind of teeing up for our listeners, some of the conversations that you've been having with folks around the trade agenda. And you know, this is an energy focused podcast, and we tend to look at things through an energy lens, but trade is increasingly critical to energy and climate issues. Can you speak a little bit about the potentials within the trade arena for some work in this regard the next few years? 
Yeah, you bet. You know, I mean, going back to talking about the United States being an efficient producer, manufacturer, for instance, our, our natural gas, our LNG has a lower emissions profile than Russian natural gas, for instance. So although Europe is importing our LNG, I mean, rather than using Russian natural gas, they're still lowering their emissions. And that includes, you know, shipping those products overseas. So you're thinking about the US being an efficient producer and also thinking that the emissions are not just restricted here to the United States, but we're dealing with a global problem and global emissions. How can federal policymaking here in the United States enhance global emissions? And one way we've seen this, and this is particularly seen it from the left and we saw it come out of COP27 was more money, spending more money, reparations in particular, the developed world paying money to the lesser developed world because we polluted once upon a time. There's a limited amount of money in the world. And so that policy triggers or just writing checks just hasn't really worked. And we also can't oversee how the money's being spent once it leaves our shores onto other countries. And there's a lot of concern about corruption or, or other areas. So, you know, what else can we do? And this is where trade comes in. How do you reward countries for cleaning up their environment, cleaning up what they do, lowering their emissions? I mean, if the United States is doing it, can other countries do that? Certainly, countries with large profiles should be able to do so with big bank accounts. And you look at, think of something dealing with Europe, thinking with Australia, Canada. These are partners that are producing clean energy products. And you've got China, thinking about China and it, it continuing to pollute, putting out a ton of energy at a low cost. So I think trade is how are we going to use a trade regime to reward those for trying to reduce emissions? And conversely, how do we punish those that continue to pollute? We see this in the markets within the United States. How do we expand it beyond our borders? And the trade piece comes into play and really fits along lines where Republicans are. We're efficient producers here in the United States. We should be rewarded. We should be producing more minerals, more LNG, more solar, more wind, whatever it is, and exporting it to places that need it because we do it more cleanly. And then while we're doing that, we can also be exporting our technology and lowering costs for people around the world to be able to use clean, affordable energy. And trade is the trigger for that. And if you're thinking about peace, you're thinking about geopolitics, isolating countries like Russia, like China, and their main products has a dampening effect. Look what's happening with Putin in Russia and natural gas right now and shipping that natural gas. It's had a terrible effect on their economy, yet you know, he continues his, his rage on Ukraine. But the, the geopolitical piece of this should not be overlooked. So is this a congressional effort? Mm, yeah, there's some role for, for Congress, but it certainly goes more into the administration in terms of U.S. trade representatives, State Department, commerce, and others. And that gets it out of the you know maybe the political piece of maybe of not just Congress, the congressional piece, but really works across government and can solve big problems. So I'm I'm optimistic that the dialogue will continue. I'm not sure we're going to see anything move anytime soon. And soon I mean the next year or two before the 2024 elections. But I think we'll have a lot of dialogue. And Neil, I'm, I'm sure you're going to be part of that. 
Well, looking ahead and, and wrapping in a number of the concepts that you just laid out, talks about all the great work that you've done with Congress, but the critical role that the administration plays. You know, you've been really effective in being a leading voice on the political right on these issues. I, for one, believe that it is untenable for the Republican nominee for president in 2024 to not have a position on some of these critical issues around carbon mitigation and clean energy and climate. Do you have a sense of how you want to approach, we're not going to get into who the nominee or candidate will be, but just at a macro general level, how do you think your organization can help really position some of these issues, not just in Congress, but for the next presidential election? 100% true. I've been working closely with Congress, both in the House and the Senate. There are just more members in the House to, to work with and helping these members talk about energy, climate, jobs all together. So you'll always find Republicans bringing the cost of energy, the abundance of energy, the affordability with economic growth and also protecting the environment. These, these three legs of a stool are incredibly important. And I would want to see any, any of our candidates on the right for president using that same recipe, right? Using those three legs of a stool and recognizing there is a value to reducing emissions. And we can do it and still be energy independent, having affordable energy and growing our economic base. We don't have to sacrifice that. And I, I agree with you that any nominee we have for president in the Republican Party must have a position on climate, must recognize it exists, and should have some roles about how we can reduce emissions. Many co congressional members are showing this pathway. And I think that uh, the candidates are, who are watching, thinking about running, or have been watching this way of engaging. And we also have to think about anyone who's running for office. It's you know 50 plus one votes, right, to get that majority. And we've got independents that care about the climate. We've got suburban women that care about the climate. And we have young people and Republicans, even in this past cycle, did not do well with those demographics that are really kind of majority makers. So if any candidate serious about winning, not only the, the nominee for the Republican Party, but actually winning in 2024, got to be there on climate, got to have a plan, got to be thinking about how we in the United States can lead globally. That's such an awesome point. And kind of looking and unpacking at what happened in this midterm, what I'm seeing a little bit is that the coalitions have sort of reconstituted in a little bit and that Republicans are increasingly stronger in more rural communities, but have lost a little bit of the traditional support in suburban areas. Do you think there is a way to kind of reunify that coalition that could win for Republicans? How do you articulate a climate clean energy message that will appeal to suburban voters and moderates and independents that doesn't alienate the rural voters that are the most staunch conservative Republican voters today. Yeah, you're right. I mean, you're thinking about rural voters. Oftentimes you think about agrarian societies, agriculture, and no one knows more about protecting the land than the farmer. Likely farmers are multi-generational. So they, they know how things have changed over time, how the climate is changing, and, and they've had to adapt. I think with suburban voters, and I'm one of them, thinking about what a lot of the suburban voters are, are families, mothers, fathers, and they're thinking about what kind of world, what kind of earth they're leaving for their children, for their grandchildren, and where their responsibility lies. And taking care of our planet is one of those pieces. And I know that's what got me very motivated to do the work that I do now. So I see the protection of the, the planet as something that would appeal both to the rural voters and to the suburban voters.
customers in a really easy way. It's not complicated, but it does need to be articulated clearly. Well, Heather Reams, thank you so much for everything that you do and for joining us here on the Plugged In Podcast. Frequent listeners of the podcast know we like to get into deep substantive conversations with our guests, but we like to close with something light and different. And in this instance, I want to ask something very specific. So you went to COP in Egypt. I wasn't there. I've heard a lot of stories about what it was like to be there. Everything from sewage to internet connectivity. Give our listeners the the reality, blow by blow. What was it like? Take the substance out of it, the politics out of it, the negotiations out of it, just physically what was the experience like in Egypt? Well, the, the weather is beautiful this time of year. It's not a cloud in the sky, blue skies, and this very brown desert, rugged mountain, and then this very blue Red Sea. So it was very pretty, and the weather was quite nice. Significant security, lots of security with lots of different uniforms. I remember asking, is that military? Is that police? Is that UN? It was hard to tell, but there was an awful lot of security. I'd say it didn't feel as organized, just overall process. It seemed like sometimes the paint was just drying, you know? (laughs) because they were hosting this international conference. But on the other hand, being in a developing nation and emerging economy that really is thinking about how they can lower their emissions, Egypt itself, but other nations, I think they were trying to really bring up some pretty good points there. So it really had this interesting mix. I mean, where we were It was actually not on the continent of Africa. We were on the Sinai Peninsula, which is the bridge between Asia and Africa. So it did feel like there was a bridge very much in conversations there. And then looking towards the next COP, COP28, that's going to be in the UAE, traditionally an oil and gas state. So it just, there was this very interesting, like what's next? Where is this going? Piece. But uh, Egypt is a, it's it's where we were. It's like, I don't think it's real Egypt. I think it's like the Cancun of the Middle East. It's on beautiful blue water. And I did get out to do some, some snorkeling in the Red Sea. I've never seen coral uh, so beautiful and fish and, and, and life. It's just, it's spectacular. It's it's halfway around the world or almost. And it was really a real privilege to be there and learn more about our global challenges, but being in a, a really pretty place too. So very cool. Thank you so much for sharing that. Heather Reams, really appreciate you joining us this week on the Plugged In Podcast. Thank you. Thanks so much again for listening to Season 3 of the Plugged In Podcast. New episodes will be available on Tuesdays at noon Eastern Time. You can keep up with all things energy by following the Washington Examiner on all of our social media channels and by subscribing to the Daily on Energy newsletter, written by me, Brianne Depish, and my co-author, Jeremy Beeman. 